Welcome to NCAGT's podcast. Our mission is to dismantle the they'll be fine myth that often surrounds gifted learners. Our goal is to address the excellence gap faced by high ability students, including those from diverse backgrounds. Join us as we advocate for gifted and talented scholars to unlock their full potential. Please note the ideas and thoughts shared here are as diverse as our guests, not always reflecting the official NCAGT stance. So keep an open mind and let's explore a variety of perspectives together. Hello and welcome to They'll Be Fine. I'm Hannah Park. In today's episode, we're gonna share some questions that were sent in by our listeners. Joining me today to bounce some ideas around is our podcast editor, Alexia. Hello, hello. Before we get started, we want to remind you that if you have any questions or dilemmas that you would like us to discuss on a future episode, feel free to reach out. You can email us at podcast at ncagt.org. Your stories, comments, reviews, and questions fuel the heart of this podcast. Now let's dive into these questions and find some solutions together. Our first message comes from Aria, and she says, I am a regular education teacher, and I've recently noticed that I have a few gifted learners in my class. While I'm excited about the potential they bring to the classroom, I find it challenging to meet their unique needs with the constraints of the traditional curriculum. How can I differentiate instruction effectively for these gifted students without leaving the rest of the class behind? I want to create an inclusive and stimulating learning environment for all of my students, but I'm struggling to find the right balance. Any advice on how to navigate this would be greatly appreciated. Thank you, Aria, for reaching out. It's wonderful that you're committed to providing the best possible learning experience for all of your students. That is so commendable, um, especially those who are gifted. Differentiating instruction in a mixed ability classroom can indeed be challenging, but when you hit the mark, it's also incredibly rewarding. So I would say the first step is to get to know your students. Knowing their likes and dislikes is crucial because it not only helps in building that positive teacher-student relationship, but it plays a significant role in you being able to tailor your instruction and create learning opportunities that they're actually going to want to partake in. You don't want to spend all of your time creating a project that they're just going to be like, mm. <laughs> I'm not doing that. And they're just not jazzed about it when you put all this effort in. So, when we think about how to get to know them, I love, when I was in the regular classroom setting, one thing that I did is I always carried around a clipboard with me. A lot of times I had behavior plans that I had to, to write on or just the schedule to keep me on track. But at the very end of my clipboard, I always kept a blank page. And during recess or lunch, I would just start random conversations with kids and I would jot down little notes about them, what the name of their cat was, their favorite color, their favorite food. And that was really helpful for several different things throughout the school year, but it really just helped me to get to know them because for me, if I write something down, mm -hmm. I'm gonna remember it. Um, so that was really helpful, but you could also do student interest surveys or interest quilts. Can you think of anything that you well, do? The, I remember when I was in person, I had I also had a clipboard that I took everywhere because if I don't have a schedule, I'm not going to remember anything. And I think that's the same thing with the kiddos. I never even thought, like, why am I not writing down 
all of their likes and dislikes and interests. That's literally brilliant because when you write it down, you actually internalize it and yeah. remember what's going on. And you can just make connections to stories and yeah, all the good stuff. And then when it comes time to like writing about the kid, you're not like, oh. Sometimes I find myself like blanking. Like I know everything about that kid, but all of a sudden, I oh, blank. Yeah. Well, and you, you said writing, and I was like, oh, writing. How many times have you taught a writing unit, and they sit down to write, and there's <laughs> just, they won't write? It's just they're... They've nothing. They've got the writer's block. But if you know about them, then you're able to jog their memory mm-hmm. and tap into who they are. So that would be step one, is to make sure that you get to know those gifted learners. Um, and then step two, before we get into differentiation, would be... Just regular communication with the parents. Parents are the experts on their children, Mm -hmm. and they know them best. Um, They can help you understand the needs that their child has and just the different expectations for their gifted learners. I think sometimes parents can, like, feel intimidating, Mm -hmm. and (laughs) they, they do. And I think we forget that, like, there are partners in this to help their kid. Yes, they're, yeah, they're a brilliant, brilliant resource, but you're right, they are. (laughs) They're scary sometimes. Um, So if you know a lot about them and you communicate with their parents regularly, then you're ready to differentiate, I think. All right, so the first suggestion I have is To provide more challenging reading material, if you have not learned about, I might not say this right, is it Magi School or Magic School? I thought it was Magic School. I'm going to look it up. Yeah, give that a Google. I think it's Magic School AI. You can copy and paste a text and put it into this, and and you can choose a reading level. So it can bump the reading level up or down. So... If you need to pull something from National Geographic, you can bump it down for them. Or you can take what your whole class is reading, put it in, and boom. They've got something on their reading level. Don't you use that other thing um, with news articles? News ELA, yes. News ELA is awesome because you can. it's the same article and you can change the Lexile level. <laughs> um, the next thing that I feel very adamant about with gifted learners is let them choose their final product. If they're working on research, a paper, essay, if they want to get a little out of the box with how they present their work, then let them. Well, it's making me think of, I, okay, so in my art class, I wanted them to learn about reflections and using the watercolors and what it would look like in a reflection form. And so in the beginning of the art lesson, we, re, we learned about Copenhagen and how the homes there are colorful for hygge. I'm not saying it right for sure, but it's like the idea of being cozy and having soft and cozy things, especially during the winter months when there's not a lot of light outside. And... In the beginning of the project, we were looking at architecture of homes, and I said, okay, now build, like, the basic homes, and I gave them a guide, and one of my students just, like, went for it. It was incredible work. Just went, like, took the project so far beyond, but it was to the point where he could no longer outline it in Sharpie, like they were supposed to before we did the reflections. And so I met with him one-on-one, and I was like, okay, so we did this, and I think it's awesome, but how do we still 
make sure that you can learn the art task of reflecting this piece. And so I kind of worked with him one-on-one -on -one to come up with some sort of solution for him to still do it. What was the solution? Oh, so the solution, great question, is um, instead of outlining it in Sharpie, he's going to color the homes themselves in colored pencil and then do the reflection with the watercolor. So we're still learning about the reflection. We're just using two different mediums on the different sides of the paper. Uh, yeah. The next thing I would say to differentiate instruction would be when you are planning your lessons, it's really good practice to always look at the grade level or couple grade levels above, look at that curriculum and see what you're able to pull into your lesson. So for example, if you're teaching fourth grade English and you're working on writing and analyzing narratives, your fourth grade standard curriculum might focus on basic narrative structure, character development. A teacher could differentiate the lesson by incorporating kind of more advanced elements. So for the story elements, introduce to your gifted learners the idea of foreshadowing, flashbacks. Mm -hmm. Could you have them show their characters having complex motivations? And then the last thing I would say is to provide a list of advanced vocabulary words and challenge them to incorporate those seamlessly into mm -hmm. their narratives. I think you're the queen of two things that you just mentioned. One, vocabulary. <laughs> you're like, I really, queen of vocabulary. And two queen of vertical alignment like I feel like you're like oh well you know like look up or down you've said that to me so many times and it I literally have flashbacks to ed tpa did you have to do ed tpa that sounds so familiar was that in college it was in college for ed tpa I was sitting down with a group of students and you had to record a small group and so I was recording my small group and I picked these kids because I knew they understood the material. <laughs> so I, I knew I'd be successful in the TPA, selfishly. But they're sitting there, and I realized in the moment while it's being recorded that they're not being challenged at all mm. because they already know it. So instead of just staying with the whole TPA was on elapsed time, instead of just having them do it to the hour and the half hour, I started doing it to 15 minute, five minute, and one minute increments with them just to like push them further. And that wasn't supposed to come until third grade or yeah. like much further than where they were. They were first graders. So just doing it in that way. So a way you can relate it to math too. Yeah, a lot of times people think that differentiating is just like if you're doing elapsed time, mm -hmm. well, this little boy can do 15 problems if everybody else mm -hmm. is doing five. It's not more that you need to give them. It's just different. And the best way to look is up mm -hmm. in the curriculum. Another idea is to kind of think about how you can take what your whole class is doing and almost like turn it sideways a little bit. Just make it a little different. So in third grade, I was teaching perimeter and the majority of the kids in class were going around on the tiled floor and there were different colored squares and different shapes of the colored squares and they were finding the perimeter of those squares mm -hmm. and that was an appropriately challenging task for them to do. For the gifted children that I had in the class at the time, they breezed through that mm -hmm. and so I put in front of them a big sheet of blank paper and I ended up having to go back and give them graph paper so they could sketch out their design first. Mm -hmm. Um, and I told them that they are architects and they are interior designers and they need to build 
a they need to design their dream room so the layout has to be but you have to do it with the perimeter and I gave them certain constraints like you have to include three windows and a door and they breezed through that so then we talked about okay well what furniture can we mm-hmm. put in there what size furniture so kind of like adding in those constraints and while the kids in the classroom were measuring the floor over in the corner of the room was a group of the gifted learners and they were working together to create their dream house and it was very cool because they actually collaborated and they had a lot of fun doing mm-hmm. it but they were practicing that skill just applying it in a more advanced way and not to mention the skills of just like collaborating with other people mm-hmm. which a lot of gifted learners struggle a little more with all right another idea for differentiation of instruction when students finish their work early earlier in the earlier when Alexi and I were talking today she was saying a good idea for an episode would be gifted learners are not teacher aides so often we want to have those kids go help someone else Mm -hmm. in the classroom that's struggling and every once in a while that's fun that's beautiful Mm -hmm. they can learn real life skills and it's great and relieves headaches for us but we have to find a good balance with that and so an alternative of just giving them more work or having them be an aide would be to allow them to partake in a passion project which we love a passion project the school lexi and i teach at we do them almost every friday we either have a steam challenge or it's a passion project day and some of my favorite passion projects that i've seen if you don't know what a passion project is it's basically when you just let the child delve deeper into a subject that they are interested in so we had a group of boys who were super into Pokemon, and they did research on all the Pokemon, and they decided that they were going to create their own Pokemon. And so they have, like, how many slides do you think that thing was? I bet it's probably 80, and it's every once in a while they still share more. Yes. Insane. They have, like, an 80-slide Google slide where they put... They created these characters, and it's just, like, down to a T, legit Pokemon cards. And it's the coolest thing ever. And the research that they had to do about Mm -hmm. all different types of things was Nutty Professor, and they loved it and enjoyed it so much, Mm -hmm. and they worked so well together to do it. Well, and some of them, so, like, the Pokemon, they determined if they were, like, grass or, like, water Pokemon. I don't know all Pokemon lingo. But they also started off drawing the Pokemon by hand, and then they found, like, an online creator where they could, like, craft it and make it look even more realistic, like it was on the card. And I've actually talked with one of the kiddos about, like, making a physical deck of cards Mm. to see how can we play with them and taking it to there. But I think they're having fun. They're having so much fun just creating them. That's, like, a passion project for the future. But can go even further well and then this ties back into having to know mm-hmm. your students because you have to help them get started passion projects are hard you have to launch it off and it can be a bit of work to get them launched but once you get them off the ground and running they will take it and they will go and it is so cool we've had kids create a pod their own podcast um one girl that I had was very interested in the Jewish culture and interviewed Holocaust survivors and Neither. different people in the Jewish community. 
they love brain teasers, so they'll cr they'll come up with their own set of brain teasers. They love jokes, writing a set <laughs> of jokes. <laughs> I taught the word cacophony in one of my classes, and oh. that started a series of cacophonies, so that was interesting. Uh, yeah, cacophony passion project. That was a little hard to, little hard to hear sometimes. <laughs> it was a cacophony. But... <laughs> Um, foreign language exploration mm -hmm. is always a very cool one. There's a lot of resources online. Um, and it's honestly, like, you could, once they kind of dive into that foreign language exploration, you could then have them find a pen pal. Mm -hmm. It's so accessible to be able to find pen pals for them to write to and translating their letters back and forth. I'm thinking, like, realistically, okay, putting myself in the shoes of a general education teacher. Yes. You have your clipboard. Every once in a while, you have your notes about the kids. I'm almost wondering, maybe it could even be, like, one kid at a time. Like, this is a cool passion project. And just planting those seeds all the time. Mm. And then when passion projects come, once you're settled into the school year, because starting it in August may be challenge, maybe a challenge, and then once all those seeds are planting, oh, remember when mm. we talked about this? And so it's, like, more realistic to start it up, like, at a later date, and they all have some sort of idea or something that you can, like, really guide them in, which goes back to knowing your kids, but... Yeah, yeah, absolutely. And it's funny you say that because just this past weekend in one of my science classes, this little girl was collecting, she's just obsessed all of a sudden with dinosaurs and sharks, and she's just collecting all of this information. And I was like, what you're doing right now is a passion project. You mm -hmm. doing this research on your own free time. And I was like, so part of a passion project is getting to share what you are passionate okay. about. So yes, your kid does the research. They do the things they're passionate about. But then you can kind of help them with that um, social piece of it. How can you put this in a form that you can share with other people? Mm -hmm. So I had a little girl who was obsessed with chickens and just knew so much about chickens. Chickadees! I let her create a mural on our classroom wall. I just kind of covered the backside of a bookcase. She was very artistic, and she created our class chicken. Like, it was a mural of a, of a pirate chicken, and she kind of incorporated, <laughs> like, elements of all the kids in the class onto the chicken. It was so beautiful and cute. And then she created a Google slide presentation about how to take care of chickens because she had chickens at home. And she presented it to our class and then some other really kind teachers in the school allowed her to go into their classroom and share. Catherine was one of the teachers. Lito. She let this little girl come into her classroom and she shared all about how to take care of chickens and it was very informative. But it was so cool because this was a child who never would raise their hand to even answer a question because they were terrified of speaking mm -hmm. in front of people. And then you look and you peek in the classroom window and you see her standing up in front of a room of 24 kids and she's just, yeah, going. It was so beautiful and rewarding and I feel like that was one student that I'm very proud of, of how I handled her. And it was all because of the passion project. And not to mention that she will never forget the opportunity. I hope not. She painted me a couple things, and I still have them Aww. in my office. But passion projects. We're here for them. We're here for passion projects. <laughs>
that kind of sums up. I know that there are a trillion more things that we could talk about, but mm-hmm. I feel like those are some big ones. Get to know your students, communicate regularly with parents, provide challenging reading materials, allow them to share what they've learned in different ways, um, make sure you're looking at the above grade level curriculum, and make it a little bit different, not more. Do you have an academically talented child who's looking for a challenging and exciting summer program? Summer Institute for the Gifted provides innovative academic programs for exceptional students from all over the world. Enroll now at some of the top universities in the country, including UNC Chapel Hill, for courses like robotics, creative writing, and neuroscience. These courses are designed to engage and inspire your child, allowing them to grow into the next best version of themselves. To learn more and enroll, visit our website at giftedstudy.org. Next up, we have a message from Sarah. This is Sarah's message. As someone who is relatively new to the AIG career, I have encountered a particular situation that has left me seeking guidance. I believe that sharing this experience on your podcast could not only provide me with valuable insights, but also serve as a learning opportunity for myself and others who might find themselves in a similar situation. In my classroom, I have a group of exceptionally bright and talented students. While I'm thrilled to work with such a remarkable group, I'm struggling to find the right balance between challenging them academically and ensuring that their social and emotional needs are met. Some of these students exhibit signs of perfectionism, and I want to create an environment that fosters a love of learning without all of the pressure that comes with it. How can I continue to challenge them intellectually while mitigating the negative effects of perfectionism? Are there specific strategies or resources that you would recommend for creating a supportive classroom environment that nurtures both academic growth and emotional well-being? Wow. That's a great question. Great cue, Sarah. Mm-hmm. My initial reaction to that was, I feel like so many gifted and talented teachers struggle with the same thing. Oh, yeah, 100%. Yeah. Which is my first point. Mm. Um, and so what I would say, Sarah, is to do your best to foster a growth mindset and really emphasize the value of effort, perseverance, mm. and learning from mistakes. Because let's face it, we're all gonna make them. And so if we just kind of honor those mistakes on a day-to-day basis, if you model making those mistakes and, and help to create a system for those kids to be able to share their mistakes, I like to call them marvelous mistakes, then you're really helping them to normalize mistakes so that their perfectionism can just sit to the back burner for a while. I love that you said praise effort. Um, I feel like when I scroll on TikTok, I always (laughs) see, especially now that I'm a mother, I see all these things come up that say, you should really try to refrain from saying, you're so smart Mm -hmm. to your children and instead praise things like their effort. You're such a hard worker. Wow, that was difficult for you, but you didn't give up. And I really try to challenge myself to do that with my students when they turn in something like, you know, a written essay that is impressive or something that they do well. Instead of saying you're smart, 
what about their character, what other pieces of their character can you boost, mm-hmm. you know, and what specifically about it made it smart, you know? Did they do a good job with their word choice? Did they show perseverance, that type of, yeah. you know, that was, type of stuff? Yeah. This is one of my points that I was going to bring up in the future, but it's a perfect segue because we don't want their whole identity being that they are smart or that they are gifted. We don't want them to be everything that they are because one day when they do fail or they do make a mistake, that'll be a little bit of like an identity crisis for them. Oh, yeah. Well, and and there's so much growth that comes from when you do mess up and you Mm -hmm. do make mistakes. And I love earlier that you said to to model, be the model, show. Like when you're reading something and you don't know how to pronounce a word, (laughs) pause and say, I don't know how to pronounce this. Let's ask, let's ask Google how, how we say this. Mm, what does that mean, Miss Park? Ooh, that's a great I have no kid. idea. I have no idea. And I think there's a lot of power in people saying, and you are so good at that. When you don't know something, you literally just say, I don't know. I'm not sure. And I feel like a lot of times people just are so afraid to say that. Mm-hmm. And I feel like that's very much in the gifted community that it's not good to not know things mm-hmm. and that's just so untrue and there's so much beauty in being you know staying curious and encouraging them to stay curious mm-hmm. and modeling that curiosity and messing up and making the oops you know because they're going to oh yeah we're all going to human beings <laughs> and I am always one to like say oops and laugh at it if I know I said a word wrong and it could be an easy word too not even like a you know, a challenging word, something we're learning. I'm like, uh, oops. <laughs> and I literally laugh at myself in the moment. Let me rewind and try again. Yeah. And I do that a lot when I'm reading a book. We're reading a book right now and it has a lot of names that I have trouble pronouncing and I just have to rewind. Sometimes I'll stop and say, hey, my dude, will you Google how to pronounce this and raise your hand once you've got it? Yeah. And then we'll go back to it. Yeah, I love that, and I think that, I don't know, I just think that that's so powerful that they see, when they see teachers who are in their minds, the one Mm -hmm. that knows everything, not know something, or mess up or make a mistake, it literally shows them how to handle mistakes when they come across them, because having kids read out loud, I don't know about you, but when I was in middle school, when we would do like the popcorn read, Mm -hmm. or if you knew your turn was coming soon, you'd skip to that paragraph and you'd try to read ahead, you know? Yes. I hated that, and I was so afraid to make a mistake, but it's great because you'll see children in your class kind of copy what you do, Mm -hmm. and then come up to those hard words when it's their turn to read out loud, and you can show them that they don't have to apologize. Mm -mm. They don't have to, you know, spend a whole 10 minutes explaining what went wrong, you know, Mm -hmm. just messed up, reset, move on, keep it going. It's great. The next thing is do not be afraid to talk about strengths and areas for growth. I think that this can sometimes like feel scary because we're talking about perfectionism, right? We don't want to highlight how they need to grow, right? Like that's what, like your instinct says like, well, don't tell them everything that they're doing wrong, but it's really important that we talk about their strengths and what they can do to get even better for them to grow. That's essential for them to grow. You just have to be so delicate in how you go about it. Delicate. Mm-hmm. That is the word. Mm-hmm. And so here are some strategies and 
naturally like keep in mind your kids because you know what to do with your students taking the advice of the parents but here are some different things that you can do when trying to talk about strengths and areas for growth so one thing would be consistent feedback so something that we're both familiar with is glow and grows and that's always making sure that you have two glows or compliments for every grow and mm-hmm. I It's supposed to be three to one, right? Yeah. But making sure that you highlight more of their strengths than where they need to grow and providing that feedback to them. That shouldn't just come at report card time because that's going to create more anxiety during report card time. Let's make it a regular thing so that they're used to it and they expect to learn what they need to grow on. I love that because a lot of times the only time kids really get that true feedback is like you said progress reports and report card time and they'll have stomach issues Mm -hmm. and literally be so anxious and some of them literally get physically sick when it's time for that stuff but if you're doing a good job of giving that weekly feedback and I know it sounds so daunting and teachers literally have so much to do Mm -hmm. throughout the week however if you look into an application an extension on Google Chrome called document studio If you put Document Studio into your Google Sheets, you can go into Google Sheets, have the name of your students, and then create a couple columns for your glows and a column for your grow. You type that in there, and at the end of the week, you hit populate, and you can have input it into that Google spreadsheet, parent emails, and on Friday, before you leave school, you just hit populate, And all the notes that you took of what they did well, what they need to work on, will email straight to the parents. Mm -hmm. And that, I mean, it's just, it is magic. And it's great because then parents actually know what's going on in the classroom. Um, I feel like it alleviates some concern about, like, what is, like, if they're wondering what's happening at school, mm -hmm. it helps them just, like, feel a sense of peace. Like, I'm paying attention to your kid. I know what your kid is doing well. And I know what your kid needs to do to grow. Mm-hmm. And it's just, like, helpful to alleviate some of their anxiety sending their baby off to school, too. Oh, yeah. Um, so consistent feedback was the first one. The second one was goal setting. So um, this is something that I do during my morning meeting, actually, is we talk about different things that we want to learn and, like, how are we going to figure that out. And so I model that with my students with pottery class that I'm in. Like, I have had a hard time wedging, so getting the air bubbles out of the clay, And I finally learned a new way to wedge. And so just modeling that goal setting for the kids. What do you want to know and how are you going to get there? Mm. Does it mean you need some time, passion project time to, like, do research? Do you need to watch some videos? Do you need me to help you figure that out? Do you want me to recommend some books? And so kind of setting those goals, and especially when those kids set the goals themselves, that's just like chef's kiss. Something you can do with the goals which um, you did today, was when you're giving a child a grow, you can say, which, like, what what do you want to grow in? And this is goal settings slash using the feedback to create some action steps. So if you use that feedback and help them figure out how they're going to reach that goal, so not even just, not just giving them the grow, but also helping them to turn it into a glow one day. Um, and helping them make up those steps and that action plan is beautiful. I really appreciate how you said that you modeled with 
your pottery. That's something mm-hmm. you're doing outside of school, and that is, you know, a piece of, that only, that lets them, A, you're teaching them something new mm-hmm. about pottery, and then B, they're learning something about you, and then C, you're giving that model of celebrating doing hard things, celebrating not being good at something. Mm-hmm. And I think it all ties back into another reason to have a relationship with parents is because parents can send you pictures and videos mm-hmm. of what kids are doing outside of school, and you can share that with the class, you know? Um, I kind of think of, I had a child one time who was terrified to join the soccer team. You know, he's third grade, never played before, wanted to play, and at the end of the season, he got the most improved trophy, and his parents sent me the trophy, mm-hmm. and I put the picture on the board and, like, in the corner whenever they come in, their little morning directions are up. I always would try to, like, plot pictures that parents would send me of what kids did over the weekend, and then we would have share time. And I think anytime you can have a share time about, oh, we have a friend in this class that did something hard this weekend. Mm-hmm. They tried to make cookies and they ended up tasting like dirt. But let's give them a <laughs> round of applause for they trying tried something, something new. difficult. Yeah. Just anytime you can celebrate someone doing hard things or failing mm-hmm. or messing up and celebrating what you learn. Mm-hmm. I'll say it again. Beautiful. Beautiful. <laughs> Well, and so my next thing is reflection on everyday tasks. And so a lot of times I've seen, like, so you know you, how you can do, like, the smile, the regular face, or the sad face. People sometimes do a thumbs up, thumbs in the middle, thumbs down. And so I think reflection on everyday tasks, I think that's important. How do you feel about this content? But I'm just kind of curious about what you, you like, your personal thoughts about a thumbs up or thumbs down. Do you think saying a thumbs down, I'm not sure about this yet, I need some more help, is instilling in students like kind of a negative connotation with not knowing without us even realizing it. The fact that it's a thumbs down. Yes. Or a sad face emoji. Just curious. I don't know. I mean, I feel like, yeah, somebody could make that argument for sure, but then I think that there's a difference between feeling sad and feeling frustrated, Mm. you know? And I also think that it's okay to feel sad or upset with yourself. So, I mean, I don't know. I think that it's kind of like you're going to offend somebody at some point, and that is another reason why you need to know your kids and doing pulse checks and seeing how they feel about it. And I like that you say the thumbs up, thumbs down. Maybe your kids could come up with, let's pick two animals. The antelope means... (laughs) (laughs) We're leaping on to the next task because we've got this. And the alligator is like, "Mm, I'm going to mosey on over. I don't know. I need to chomp on it a little more. I need need to chomp on it a little more. That's good. Okay, I think I like the antelope and the alligator. That's good. And then honestly, the alligator eats the antelope. So... Because you're building neuroplasticity when you do hard (laughs) things. So... I like that. <laughs> That's actually really good. What a cue. <laughs> what a cue. My last thing for not being afraid to talk about strengths and areas for growth is student-led conferences. So letting your kids take the lead on reflecting on their own learning and sharing that with the people that they love most 
will not only help the teacher to shed light on those strengths and areas for growth, but help tie in the parent because you're doing that work at school and the kid is tying in the parent for you mm. to get them on the same page. Mm. This is what we're doing here and this is awesome sauce. Yes. Like, celebrate me. And it's just a huge celebration of the kid because the kid is producing it all. Yeah. Yeah, definitely. Does that make sense? I kind of tracked there. It so. does. It does. And when I think about the student-led conferences that we do, one of the last things that we have the kids fill out is... <laughs> what do I need from me? What do I need from my teachers? What do I need from my parents? And I love that because they leave that student-led conference and it's a safe space for students to literally f- tell you explicitly what they need from you. And we've seen some pretty honest things. And sometimes it's a little bit of a hard (laughs) pill for me to swallow. Hard to hear. But that's also another perfect opportunity for me to do self-reflection and say, you're right. That is an area Mm -hmm. where I could do better, be better, huh? I appreciate, you know, and, Mm -hmm. and model that. And model how to take constructive criticism and go with it. And then you make them feel so heard. Yeah, I love student-led conferences. Oh, and you mentioned like, um, um, what do you say? Do better, be better. Yeah. What do you say? <laughs> I don't know. Yeah. It's that saying. Well, I think it's like taking constructive criticism can be so hard. And sometimes with my kids, I'll even say that is a big thought. I need some time to process that. Like, I'm going to get back to you. Mm-hmm. And even modeling that and saying, like, hey, like, you're really struggling right now. Like, this is big. Mm-hmm. Like, take a minute to sit in this suck, and then we'll deal with it later. I don't mm-hmm. tell them to sit in the suck. I tell that to me. But, <laughs> like, like, sit in this frustration for a minute, and then, like, yeah. and then we can deal with it. Because when you're frustrated, that's, like, when most, the most beautiful things happen. Because that's yeah. when you're really learning. And then when, essentially, I'm doing my job. If you're not being challenged, I'm not doing my job. Yes. Ooh, and that's another good point to remind them of when they do get frustrated or when they do feel like they're not doing well, <laughs> is just saying listen yeah like, yay you're yeah. struggling it's that productive <laughs> struggle though and I think that when like when I think about being 18 19 20 years old in college learning how I'm gonna be a teacher reading about productive struggle mm-hmm. all the stuff you can read about it but you just you get good at observing a kid and Mm -hmm. watching and knowing when they are struggling and when they're not. So if you feel like you are a person who is struggling with productive struggle, like knowing whether or not the kids in the class are, are doing that, go to your principal or a mentor and ask who they know in your school building is good at that specific Mm -hmm. thing and beg to go observe that teacher in multiple settings because it is, because I think, and the thing is, is I think a lot of teachers may not even know that they are good at it. You know what I mean? Like, mm-hmm. it's, I don't know. So I just, that would be a, a big tip is with any of this stuff, if you feel like, I don't even know if I know that, mm-hmm. this is a reminder to you, you know, like, 
it's okay to not know. Go ask. Go ask if you can observe mm-hmm. and watch because that's the best way to learn. My first year teaching, I was just a mess. <laughs> you know, I feel like that's it. It was not. That, <laughs> I was just I mean, an absolute mess. And shout out to Julie in Union County because she was like, let's get you a sub for half the day and let's observe teachers mm, in your building. Yes. Julie, I love you. Yes. And I saw these teachers have kids just like mine that were maybe rolling around on the carpet. Were they still learning? Yeah. It yeah. didn't matter. And I'm like seeing all of the things that are happening in my classroom that I'm feeling like I'm such a terrible teacher for. And I'm like, wow, other people are doing it too. Yeah. Oh, Yeah. I think that, honestly, that's my number one takeaway from everything we've talked about this evening is if you're struggling with something, feeling frustrated with certain teaching tactics, find good veteran teachers and go watch them. Another strategy to help out your kiddos, you know, meet in the middle of that balance of perfectionism and also being challenged would be to introduce mindfulness activities and stress reduction techniques to help them manage their anxiety because let's be real kids are anxious sometimes and you know having some sort of method for them to honor the feeling and then get through it and come out on the other side is really important to establish before they're really challenged and frustrated so that they know the tools to use. So something that I've done recently is I've taught our kids how to do this really deep breath. I'm not sure what it's called. I tried to Google it, couldn't find it. I saw it on the tick of talk recently. And it's when you take a deep breath and you hold it at the top. And while you're holding it at the top, you take one more deep breath in and you can feel it in your chest. And then when you let it out, it does some sort of magic where you just like feel better. And if you do just three of those, it really helps calm them down. And I taught them this maybe last week and I've had kids like, you need to do a deep, deep, like you need to do a deep, deep breath. And they do it and it's like literal magic. So instilling those practices in before they really get to a state of such frustration that they shut down is so important. Yeah. Do you have any other, like, because I know you are, like, in on the mindfulness. Wasn't that your grad school project? Oh, it was. I love mindfulness. It, it, it just truly, it does a lot. But I will say, like, it even makes me nervous to use that word here on this podcast because I feel like it turns people off mm-hmm. just because there's a lot of, you know, mindfulness is one of, like, the core parts of, the Buddhist religion, you know? So some people feel frustrated because they feel like you're pushing religion into the school and mm. places that it doesn't need to be, and it scares people because they just don't necessarily know exactly what mindfulness is. Um, I didn't even think about it. Yeah, well, and that was one of the issues that I had when I was in grad school. I almost didn't get to do my grad project and my thesis and all that because I got pushback from some of the parents and religious ties or not, is it involved in some cultures and religions? Yes, absolutely. But at the end of the day, this is scientific (laughs) research, like research-based science. So like, I'm thinking like, what would you teach your kids to do in a calm down corner? Hit it. 
I love the idea of being able to whack a pillow. Yes. I love the idea of being able to whack a pillow. Letting kids just... Because it's, it's just built up energy in their body and frustration that they need to get out and whack a pillow. But I don't think that's appropriate. My first year of teaching, we had... I was a, It was a leader in school. And the coach came in and she said, I brought in a trampoline my first year teaching. Mm. And in the back of the classroom, the kids were jumping <sighs> on the trampoline. And every teacher that saw her walk in with that trampoline was like, what are you doing? That's going to be a disaster. That's not good. And she was like, watch my kids jump on this trampoline to get out their energy because they are children. Like, Listen, and here's the thing. is I could see a trampoline being put in a classroom as wicked problematic. 100%. Yes. <laughs> yes. Yeah, the class that I teach at Pfeiffer is classroom behavior management, and I can only think of. (laughs) Yeah, but the thing is, is you can do it. It is possible if you are strategic and well thought out, and the key word here is boundaries. If you build boundaries around that trampoline and, like, what it is used for and you are consistent, I think consistent is another word, if you're consistent with it, Beautiful. I haven't, I'm just upset that I never tried to do that because that's beautiful. Way better than hitting a pillow. But a trampoline. A trampoline. I love that. I would have kids like go run in the hallway real quick, run to the door and back. Yeah. But that's, you have to be careful with that because is it disrupting the other classes? Will they come back? Know your kids. Yeah. Know your kids. Know your kids. kids. (laughs) I also would make some deals with staff throughout the building uh, and like signing Mm -hmm. them up to you know use five minutes of their lunch because you know how some of you know there's different positions within the school building and you can convince people to use five minutes of their lunch twice a month to come and take the kid on a a mindful walk or just yeah you know spend some time like if you have a baby that needs some love Spend some time. Spend some time. Nine times out of ten, I feel like that's all they need. Okay, so I think it's really beautiful how you mentioned boundaries earlier with the trampoline. I would like to read a part from an excerpt from an article from the Institute of Educational Advancement. Okay. And I want to hear your thoughts on it. When it, like, thinking of Sarah's question about perfectionism, gifted ed, Challenging students, zone of proximal development, like, you know, we didn't never mention that word, but <laughs> I just mentioned it just now. The Institute for Educational Advancement says, set limits with your gifted child. Whether that is a time limit, a word count, or a problem count, setting hard, defined limits will help children from becoming hyper-focused and help them learn about setting boundaries. At first... This will be a challenge, as your child will want to continue to work, but helping them know that it is okay to take breaks and come back to something will help them in the long run. Oh, dude. Yes. Thoughts. Shoot. So I think that children literally crave structure, Mm -hmm. and to an extent, they crave discipline. Mm -hmm. They literally kind of think about it like bowling without the... Bumpers. Bumpers. Children need the bumpers when they bowl. They need you to be their bumpers. They need you to keep them in a lane of, like, (laughs) guide them, you know? And um, 
when they reach a certain age, you can drop the bumpers. Is I don't know. Well, childhood is all about learning the bumpers. Yeah. Learning how to use the bumpers. Well, figuring out how to not need them at a certain point. It's about providing an environment for a child to feel like they can hit the rail. They can make a mistake, but they're mm-hmm. it's like nothing. They're not gonna die. Nothing bad is gonna happen mm-hmm. to them. Mommy's not gonna go away because they, what you know what I mean? Mm-hmm. I think kind of having that and that's kind of like you know Bloom's taxonomy a Maslow's hierarchy that's like the fundamentals like yeah basics I love that analogy with the bowling that's very good and there you have it we truly appreciate your time spent with us today if you enjoyed this episode of they'll be fine please consider sharing your thoughts Leaving a review on Apple Podcasts or Audible would mean the world to us, but we understand if it feels like a lot. Even a quick five-star rating or sharing this episode on your own social media can make a significant impact. Your support helps us reach more families and educators who are navigating and advocating for their gifted loved ones. We hope you'll join us on our next episode as we sit down with another amazing stakeholder in the gifted community. Until then, take care.